Um, it's good to be with you. Uh, we're, we're in a series on the Ten Commandments, as you know, and uh, we're going to be looking uh, at Exodus chapter 20 again. So if you have a Bible and can turn to Exodus 20. But can I say while you're turning there, this building is great. I haven't been here before. This is an amazing space, isn't it? It's, there's already people, near, I love that new building, and there's already people sitting on the steps. I mean, it's just fantastic. Like, there's a vestry out there. It's like a real church. I don't know what a vestry is, but I know, apparently it's where Jez goes and gets changed in the middle of a meeting or something um, into his Superman clothes. But it's amazing. I was, I was here. How many, anybody else in the room, some of you were, who was here for the very first week we met together in Seaford School the, the, for the launch? So about... 15, 20 of us maybe. Yes, perhaps. Okay, and so I had the, I've had the joy of seeing this on and off. Obviously, I haven't met a lot of you before, but seeing this on and off over the last 10 years, and it's so exciting to see what God's doing and how it's just growing, but just that the sense of joy and worship and uh, sense of breakthrough even in a, as a community and having landed here and got this space, it's really exciting time to be with you. And um, it just feels like yeah, Aslan is on the move. Um, if you, you know, it's just wonderful. So, um, but we're going to be in, in Exodus chapter 20 today. I'm going to read from the passage straight away. And um, we have been looking through the, the Ten Commandments, which are, if you are new to the Ten Commandments, you may have probably, you've almost certainly heard of them, but if you're new to them, they are God's best way to live, really. That's how we, uh, you, as you read the Ten Commandments, you see a vision of life that is better than any other alternatives, um, although they're often pretty challenging as well. And we're going to read one that's no exception this morning. But I'll read the whole thing, Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of God's. Ten Commandments have been around for about 3,000 years, probably a little bit longer, and they're like a summary statement of what it looks like to put God first in your life. And over that time, the Ten Commandments have stayed the same, as you would expect, right? They, they haven't changed at all. They have sat there in tablets of stone, and sometimes you can see them in tablets or outside courtrooms because the Americans are having an argument about something. But you have these great tablets that say these have, they've been translated into different languages, but they have remained unchanged. And meanwhile, the world in those 3,000 years has changed beyond all recognition, hasn't it? It's changed from really late 
Stone Age or early Bronze Age sort of civilization into the kind of digital age civilization we have now. And that world has changed dramatically while the Ten Commandments have just stood there saying the same thing in a very, very few number of words. And with all of the, the way the world has changed, the civilizations have come and gone, and they've risen and fallen. And we, you could trace, if you knew your history, just the way in which the world has ebbed and flowed and changed while the Ten Commandments have remained static. And so you'd have the Egyptians and then the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, the Arabs, the Christians, the Turks, the Spaniards, the British, the American empires, and then who knows where next. And you've seen all of those changes and all of the ways society has decided to define what's good and evil. And meanwhile, the Ten Commandments are still there, just saying, this is what it looks like in 200 words. This is what it looks like to put God first in your life. And each of those different civilizations has objected to the words we've just read, but in different ways, which is an interesting thing to think about for a moment, that if you listed those 10 Every one of the civilizations I've just mentioned would have a problem with them, but they'd often have a problem with them at different points. So you would have some civilizations that would have a huge problem with Jews or Christians refusing to worship images. That was actually one of the major problems that the early generations of Christians were persecuted for and killed for. So you are not prepared to worship images, and that's our problem with you, you Christians and Jews, right? You don't venerate you the the images the idols that we do and that makes you a social problem and so we're going to have to kill you now and that's often how it went for the first few hundred years as well as for the jews and so they would object to effectively number two and there'll be other civilizations that have had a huge problem with jews and christians commitment to property rights on the basis of number eight which is about stealing or number 10 which is about coveting so if you're a christian in communist russia Christianity, or communist China actually, in parts of it today, the, the, the problem with Christianity is partly that you simply don't accept that there is such a thing as state ownership of all possessions, because Christians believe that there is such a thing that I might own that someone else can't steal. And so there's a problem with number eight or number ten. There have been other times in history people have got very angry about Christians keeping number three, which is about not swearing oaths. And they got very upset with Christians. You say, you don't swear by the genius of the emperor or by the state, so we're going to kill you. Or people have got upset about the fact that Christians don't take up arms in warfare, which is about number six, or whether they insist on one day of rest out of seven, which is number four. And so you get different civilizations in every culture will oppose the Ten Commandments, but on a different number. And in a way, they're all objecting to, really to number one, which is, you shall have no other gods but me. And so as you see these different, you read history, you think, wow, every, the Ten Commandments are still there. They haven't moved, but the societies around the Ten Commandments have moved so much that they will find different things to complain about every year. And in our generation, probably the main commandment that people take exception to, in many ways when they understand what it means, is number seven, which is you shall not commit adultery. That's probably, it, in many ways, all societies struggle with number one, no other gods but me, but the one that the rubber hits the road on in our society more than any other is the Christian teaching on sexuality, sexual ethics, the way you can and can't use the gift of sex. And that number seven is really the sticking point for our generation. Even though a lot of people in our society actually quite like number six or number four or whatever it might be. If you look at how this command is treated in the Bible, you'll find that adultery as a technical thing, as in a man sleeping with a woman who is not his wife, is, now actually, a man sleeping with a woman who's married to somebody else, or when he's married to somebody else, that when you look at adultery technically, you realize that the way the Bible uses this command is actually a little broader than simply that. So in other words, it's no good saying, well, I haven't committed adultery because I 
had sex with somebody, but she wasn't married, so it's okay. That's not necessarily true, because the Bible elaborates on and expands this commandment in a number of different ways. And so faithful sexuality, which the Bible, well, in fact, Christian tradition is often called chastity, includes a whole bunch of things, and a whole bunch of things, well, in fact, two things you can do, and a whole bunch of other things you can't do. So have a look at this slide, which is basically a summary of the things that you can do to express faithful sexuality in biblical terms. Basically, unpacking commandment number seven, what does the Bible say about how you do that? And really, there are two things that you do, and then a whole bunch of things that you don't do, according to the Christian and Jewish unpacking of this command. Your options are celibate singleness, which is, 1 Timothy 5 would be a good example. You treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That would be an example of the way you, basically, you treat people to whom you are not married as your brother or your sister. Um, and, and that's it. So there's celibate singleness, and there's a lot in that. That's what Jesus was like that. Paul was that. John the Baptist, many, Jeremiah, many of the great heroes of the faith, actually, men and women, celibate singles. Or there is one man and one woman marriage, which is what Jesus speaks of uh, and what Genesis speaks of. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And those two options, if you like, are, you think about the center of the bullseye. That's what faithful sexuality looks like in Christianity and in Judaism, in fact. But because those two things are the things that Christianity puts in front of us and says that's what it is, if you want to obey commandment number seven, if you want to live out faithful sexuality, that's what it looks like, there are a whole bunch of other things that are ruled out. And this is the bit that causes people today problems. Most people today don't mind. They often laugh at people if they do that, and they sometimes laugh at people who do this. But much of the time, people are quite happy to live and let live if you say, we do this. What they don't like is if you then say, and we don't therefore do this which is all other forms of sexual expression. And again, you've got biblical references there because I don't want to get into the weeds on every individual text, but you'll see a whole bunch of them. Adultery, sex outside of marriage, homosexual sex, incest, bestiality, lusting, polygamy. Some of them you might think, gosh, who would ever do that? And some of them you might think, that's trivial in our culture. But whichever way you respond to them, those things are all ruled out in biblical Christianity and in actually biblical Judaism too, as invalid expressions of the gift of sex. That's what people get bothered about. They, they read, don't commit adultery. Many modern people will say, I, d- I don't. And most of my friends who aren't believers will say, I don't commit adultery. And they don't. But this would be a much more controversial challenge for people because it would express what, at the heart of commandment number seven, how is that commandment then used and de- explained in the context of the whole Bible? And most worldly empires don't object to number seven. Actually, if I, you know, that list of Assyrians, Babylonians, some of them might practice some of it, but they wouldn't mind if you said this is in and this is out, and in many, many cultures agree with it. Many cultures in the world today would say that's what you should do. You'd go for a holiday in the Middle East and just ask random people on the street, what do you think, how do you think the gift of sex should be expressed? An awful lot of people you meet will say, well, either like that or like that. Wouldn't be uncommon. But in our culture, it's very challenging and controversial. And in in order to make sense of it, we then have to ask, so why are those restrictions there? Why would that be true? Is it just a random rule? God went, I'm going to do it like this, but for no real reason. Or is there a heart behind it? Is there an intention behind it? Does sex perhaps mean more than we might realize it does to undergird all of these sorts of explanations and restrictions? And I want to suggest that there are, and I want to say that I think there are three big picture connections between sexuality and other things which help us make sense of why, for, for God, 
do not commit adultery and express that in this way is at the heart of his desire for human sexuality. Why does it matter to him? I think there are three big reasons, three big things that sex is connected to God in three big ways. And the first is that sexuality is about creation. Sexuality is about creation. It connects to, you can take this down now, otherwise it would probably be a, a bit of a distraction. But the sexuality is about creation. It expresses something of the complementary pairs that are at work in creation. So you think for a moment about Genesis 1, God creates the world, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as soon as he does, the earth as he begins is formless. It's without shape and empty. And what God does is he begins to make distinctions between things. He says, and God separated light from darkness. And then God separated the waters above from the waters beneath. And God separated the day from the night. And God separated the sun and the moon. And, God, and then he creates human beings, male and female. That's how God forms. That's what God does in Genesis chapter 1. It is an exercise of bringing order out of chaos as he makes distinctions between things. Not saying higher and lower, but generally just saying different. That's like this and that's like that. And so he makes these distinctions. And if you go through, actually, in many languages, those pairs that God identifies in Genesis 1 are male and female pairs. So if you speak English, of course, you don't have, we don't have gender-specific nouns. But in many languages, they do. You learn French or German or Spanish or whatever it may be. You have to learn them. And so you'll find in many of those languages, it'll be like day and night. Day is male and night is female, or sun and moon, and probably the European languages you know, you might think, yeah, okay, that's generally true of many of those pairs. And then, of course, ultimately, there's male and female. It's a distinction that's made. And in the biblical picture of creation, there is a, a, a harmony or a fit between male and female, heaven and earth, day and night, sun and moon. All of those things come together as a pair, which itself produces life. That's how creation is structured. Now, that might sound like a slightly weird way of saying it, but just consider, if, if you have, if you like, you, you have pairs of in, with earth, you have one sun and one moon. You don't have many suns or many moons or two days for every night. You have one of each, and it's the union of the two that ends up causing life to be possible, as it is on the earth. If you had, for instance, earth above and earth beneath, you don't have life. That's, a, that's what a cave is, right? Earth above, rock above, rock below. You don't have any life. If you have sky above and sky beneath, you don't have life either. That's really what Jupiter is. If you think about it, it's like atmosphere up here, gas down here. There's no life. You get life by the combination of heaven or sky and earth. The two of them come together and produce life. That's how God has structured the world and the universe to be. And in the same way, if you have just biologically, everybody knows. You have male and male or female and female. You don't have life. What you need is male and female together, and it's in that union that you produce life, which is very obvious, actually. Everybody knows it, although it's often, in our culture, might be controversial to say it sometimes, but it's very obvious that it's true. Um, I don't know if you saw this advert um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of summers ago. This is KLM, uh, who is the Dutch airline, and they put up an ad saying, it doesn't matter who you click with. 
uh, on it was on a, a sort of anniversary like you know Pride Day or something, and obviously the whole point of the ad is to say hey you can be you know sleep with whoever you like it doesn't really matter and of course this was then parodied mercilessly on online because of course every single person out there goes actually it really does matter who you click with because the whole point of this picture is it shows you that that fits in a way that that one and that one don't and so if I was to sit on your plane and say doesn't matter who you click with I've just got two of these you would say excuse me sir please put on your seatbelt and quite rightly because it does matter. In fact, this picture shows the exact opposite of what it looks like it's trying to promote, which is that there is a fit between male and female that there is not between male and male and female and female. It's kind of obvious. And sexuality in that way is not unique. It's not arbitrary for people to function that way because that's the way that all of the animal kingdom, but also the whole of the created order functions, that different things come together, and as they do, they produce life. And what you've got to notice, of course, is that the when they do... God hasn't separated male and female for no reason to leave them separate. He's actually separated with a view to bringing beautiful harmony back together as they join, as they are united, they produce life. And if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you start with God separating and distinguishing heaven and earth, light and darkness and so on. But by the time you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, all of those pairs have come back together again. And so effectively heaven and earth have become united and beautifully married. And the sun is effectively, the light is so great that the sun and the moon are completely eclipsed and male and female are together, united in the church and effectively married to the Lord Jesus. In other words, those separations are ultimately pointing forward to a beautiful union that will come as God comes and makes all things new. In other words, there is something about creation that, it, that human sexuality is putting on display. So when a man and a woman come together in marriage and have sex in that context, it is putting on display a bigger vision of complementary fitting between the different things that God has made, and that's one of the reasons why God cares about it. Creation is marriage writ large. Heaven and earth will come together like a man and a woman in marriage, and those whom God has joined together, let man not separate. So sexuality is about creation. The second thing sexuality is about, the second thing it puts on display is worship. Right? Sexuality it matters in the Bible because sexuality reflects worship. So sexuality is like a picture of your devotion to God, which again in our culture is not a common way of thinking, but in biblical thinking it's kind of very obvious. Because in the Bible there's a very strong connection between the number of gods you worship and the number of sexual partners you have at one time, or whatever, right? So the Ten Commandments, we've just read them, begin with a demand for exclusive worship, but include a demand for exclusive sexuality. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other wives besides her, or no other husbands besides him. Do you see that, that in some ways there's an obvious fit even in the Ten Commandments we've just read? But as you read through the Bible, you think that's not a one-off. Actually, again and again, God presents himself as the husband of Israel, and God is like you're saying, I am your lover. So for those of you who think this sounds a little bit sort of, might, might be like a male-centered instruction, actually the human race and the church and Israel are pictured as women, not as men in the Bible. So actually as a guy, I'm going, I am the bride of Christ. That's the way the, the metaphor works, not the other way around. God presents himself as the husband of Israel who says, I am going to make a covenant for you, to you, and I'm going to love you forever no matter what you do. And Israel is presented as a wife who then becomes adulterous and cheats on God by worshipping other gods. That's the way the picture works. So we have a faithful covenant-keeping God husband in, the, in this picture, and we have an immoral, adulterous Israel. 
And when Israel commits idolatry, often biblical writers, and it doesn't, it shocks us when we read some of these parts of Scripture sometimes, but often the Bible presents Israel as committing an act of prostitution or whoredom or whatever it might be. And if you do a Bible search for the word whore or prostitute, you'll get a, or harlot, you'll get a lot more responses than you think. But you've got to be very careful to do a Bible search, not a Google search for those things, because otherwise you end up in terrible hot water and you blame the preacher. But you'd, Judges 2.17 would be a classic text. Yet they did not listen, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Right? But that's very common in the Old Testament. You read again and again, God is the faithful husband, and Israel is the unfaithful prostitute wife. And at the same time, when you find Israel committing idolatry, worshipping other gods, you often find sexual immorality is not far behind. So you'd find that with the golden calf story, which is, comes just a few weeks after the, the Ten Commandments we've just read. And Israel is bowing down to another God, and then, of course, they start committing sexual immorality because that's what people often do when they exchange God for gods. They exchange one woman or one man for many partners of all kinds, and that's, that exchange is something that Paul brings out in Romans, and it often happens. It happens when they start worshipping the Moabite gods. They all start sleeping with Moabites. Happens whenever they have a feast to an idolatrous god, there's often sex not far away, and the kings who worship many gods are also the kings who have many wives. And so you, again and again, the connection is being made. Sexuality is about worship. If you are faithful in your sexuality, it will be connected to faithfulness in your worship. But if you are unfaithful, if you are promiscuous, if you have lots of husbands or wives, and by the way, when many of us have got backgrounds where we have been promiscuous, and I've done all kinds of sexual things that I am very ashamed of. We will come to the biblical answer to that problem in a moment. But for now, we've just got to see that that's what it, how the Bible expresses it, that there is a connection between the people you sleep with and the gods you worship because the two of them are put in parallel. Your sexuality is about worship in that sense. And God throughout is portrayed as a jilted but faithful husband who loves Israel no matter what they do and no matter how many gods they have. And so Paul picks up on that in Romans, as I said, and, and he makes the point that idolatry is when you exchange one God for many, and in the same way, you'll find that exchanging one spouse for many or for many other sexual partners is not far behind because the two are connected. Sexuality is about worship. It's, I worship a God who is other than me, and I am married to a woman who is other than me. And when you change one, you'll almost inevitably change the other. And that it's part of why my friends who aren't Christians and me disagree about sexual ethics. I, love, I spent two days on holiday up in London staying with two friends of mine who are just you know, really close friends. Friends of mine for, have been for 20 years and obviously not Christian at all, very pretty convinced atheists actually. And we've just got a, on totally different pages when it comes to sexual ethics, in large part because for me what sex means is different than what it means for them. It's not because we agree on what it is and then disagree about whether this arbitrary rule should apply to it. It's that actually sexuality means, I would say, more in my system of thought than it might do in theirs, right? Many people today see sex as basically a pleasurable experience between two consenting adults. If you do this, you get a nice physical sensation. It's like going tandem skydiving, just doing it without your clothes on. Or something. It's like something that gives you a rush, and it, what's, the, what's the problem? So who would restrict skydiving from being done between two people of the same sex, or two, three people if they could make the parachute work that way, or whatever it was? What would be the problem with that? And you see, it doesn't make any sense to people. They say, it's just a physical thing. What's the problem? And of course, I hear that. I say, no, but that's not what sex means to me. That's not what sex means to Jesus, or Paul, or Moses. Sex, or to God... 
Sexuality to me is about covenant and about exclusivity and about worship and about otherness and about faithfulness and about union and permanence and mystery. So it means much more to me in my system of seeing the world biblically than it might do to you. And so for me, the restrictions are part and parcel of how precious it is. In the same way that for you, I can see that without that wider theological framework of what sex is, it probably doesn't make any sense to restrict it in these ways. Sexuality is about creation, but it's also about worship. And then thirdly and lastly, sexuality is about creation, it's about worship, but it's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. It is a parable of the Christian gospel in which Christ lays down his life for his wife, for his bride, the church, in order to sanctify her and make her clean. It is a parable of permanence. It is like a silhouette of salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 5, this is a profound mystery. He's talking about marriage. He says it's a profound mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, I've got a video which I hope will help illuminate this. It just takes about three minutes to watch. One, you know, a handful of you may have seen it already. But I hope it will just illuminate this in that way, and then we'll come back and comment on it in a moment. Can we just play the video? I love that video. I've seen it many times, but I love that video because, and I love the biblical truth that it's based on because it does two things at the same time that are complete game changers when it comes to Christian sexuality in the modern world. Right, one of them we've been spending a lot of time this morning looking at, which is that it shows us why it is so important to maintain a biblical account of human sexuality even when, as it is at the moment, and it wasn't 100 years ago and it may not be in 100 years' time, but it is now very, very unpopular. And the reason why it matters so much is because sexuality is about creation and because it's about worship and also because it's about the gospel. So if I, this is about that. So if I have sex with someone who I'm not married to or if someone of the same sex or with multiple partners or with someone else's partner or an animal or my sister, I am misrepresenting what the gospel is. I'm acting as if Jesus has done that to me. I'm putting on display a false reading of how faithful God is to his people and how faithful he calls us to be to him. Faithful sexuality is about creation and worship, but it is also about the gospel. And that's one of the two things that I love about the truth expressed in that video. But on the other hand, it also holds out the very hope we need, the very rescue that we are calling out for, for all of us who have failed to live up to that standard. And this is what's so powerful about the way Paul talks, because he's not only saying, hey, Here's a whole bunch of reasons to aspire to a high moral standard that you haven't lived up to. Because he knows that his churches haven't lived up to, and he knows that we, many or most of us, haven't either. But he's not only says this is a beautiful picture of that high moral standard, but he's also saying the very thing that faithful sexuality puts on display is the way that God will respond to those who express unfaithful sexuality. The very thing it shows me is that even if I am a promiscuous individual and I sleep around and I make all kinds of mistakes and get myself into a terrible sexual mess, Jesus will remain faithful to me even if I'm not faithful to him because his promise is spoken to me whether or not I keep mine. That's the nature of the marriage covenant and it's the very thing that the gospel puts on display. And it tells me about a God who does not stare at me in disgust if I sleep with someone I shouldn't which the accuser would like me to believe that he does. 
You'd like to say, you have done that, and that makes you defiled to the point that God won't even look at you, far less love you. But actually, the gospel says, that's not true at all. The gospel tells me that even when I have not got, if you're like, I'm not wearing a white dress, I'm, I'm feeling stained and dirty and polluted, that Jesus is going to make me white anyway, that he's going to purify me anyway because he came to rescue me and to forgive me from all of my idolatry and all of my sexual infidelity and to present us, me, to him, pure and holy and spotless in his sight, whatever I've done. So for all of my sexual sin and for all of yours, all of us who trust in Christ are going to be wearing white at our wedding to him when Jesus is united to his bride, the church, and creation stands to applaud in joy and wonder at how spotless we are. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, up would I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Faithful sexuality matters. It can be very costly. Right? It can be. It is for some of us here. Faithful sexuality can be very costly for those who are single in a sex-saturated culture. It can be very costly for those of us whose marriages are in difficulty. Sometimes through our fault, sometimes through someone else's fault, sometimes through a mixture of both. But it can be costly for us to live out this vision of sexuality in a world where it's very easy. And in all the world around us, people just break those things very easily. And when in Christianity, when we don't, it can be costly of us. It is costly for those of us who are attracted to people of the same sex as we are. And people in, many people in this church in that situation say, this is costly, this is harder for me because, Andrew, you have, if you like, a, a context in which to express your sexuality, which I don't because I am called to a celib- life of celibate singleness because I'm attracted to people of the same sex as me. Then there's a lot of people for whom this is costly. And it will obviously be costly for anybody who says any of this stuff in public or even just over the water cooler to a colleague because it will make you sound backward or even bigoted to anybody who doesn't have the same vision of what sex means as Jesus does. It can be very difficult because it's effectively calling us to something that can't be achieved under the law but can only come about as we die to ourselves and trust in Jesus and walk by the Spirit. But even though it is all of those things, costly, difficult, unpopular, it matters because it reflects creation and Worship and the gospel, and the very gospel that is that helps us when we fail, which is that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that he might, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And it's that gospel that provides the basis for us to come to the table as we're going to in a moment and receive these gifts. This is like, and you see in the video, the wedding feast. Do most weddings even today, you go and you witness the wedding and you clap and you whoop and then you go away and you mill around for an interminable amount of time while people take photographs and then you often go and have a meal and the meal is a way of saying, we are thankful that God has brought these couple together and we are so glad we're here to celebrate it. That's exactly what this symbolizes. We are thankful that God in Christ has reconciled us to him and we have this meal now to celebrate and to applaud the fact that God has done everything needed to reconcile us with him. So in a moment, if you have repented of your sins and if you trusted in Jesus, and as you look to him as the Lord of your life and savior of your soul, we'll come together and share the Lord's Supper. God's commands are for our good. They are not easy. That's why we need to rely on the Spirit. That's why we need to die to ourselves and trust in Jesus. But 
They are for our good. And this one puts the gospel on display like almost nothing else. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and goodness to us in your word and in your commands. And I'd be the first to say, we find them hard often. We find them hard to speak about sometimes. We may certainly find them hard to follow. But we are so grateful that we come to a Savior who has done all that is needed to forgive us and wash away every impurity, even when we have fallen short of your standard. And we rejoice in that gift and we thank you for your love and affection for us and your forgiveness of everything we've ever done that has missed out on what you wanted. We are so thankful for Jesus, and we praise you. Amen.